I'm not embarrassing um, Mary thank you for um, she's offering a mass for Suzanne and me I cannot tell you how humble I am I think both of us feel the same way that she would have done that I'm deeply grateful um, anybody like to include somebody in prayers tonight In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is from the song that we heard. Gosh, today is Monday. I don't know why it feels late in the week for me, but so it had to be last week, sometime midweek, I guess. There's um, one thing I one thing I seek. That's a good dog. One thing I seek to to live in the house of the Lord forever. One thing I seek to live in the house of the Lord forever. Um, um, strengthen us in our efforts to do that, in our seekings, Lord. Um, in all things, help us to stay close to you. Let all of us be strengthened by this work that we're doing together. Um, you are at the center of it. Our whole effort is to learn to come to you more closely, to break out of our pews, our comfortable lives. Um, and sometimes that means entering probably more than sometimes entering your cross. Strengthen us that we can do that and do it with joy, knowing um, we find you there, mostly there, um, um, because that's where you call us to give ourselves up, to die, to join you. Um, in all that we do, help us to bring you to each other, and more especially to a world that doesn't know you. Um, I ask a special blessing on John Meehan. Receive him into your kingdom. Let him know the joy of being with you and the glory that everything that he longed for in this life will now be fulfilled. Um, be with Betty. Console her. Um, um, let the trial that she will undergo now in his absence um, be an occasion for growing even closer to you and to John. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's, um, oh, uh oh, it's better. Uh -oh. I forgot, I forgot it. What? Is no, that, did hurt. you give it back? Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Would you let me know when you're doing something, please? <laughs> <laughs> I came here looking for the Sound of the Fury in the office and wasn't anywhere around. And then Suzanne was three quarters down the way down the hall, hollering, I've got it, I've got it. And um, Jeannie, thanks for that. I really enjoyed it. You're it's welcome. a good book. I'm glad you um, did. I'm going to let you borrow this just for you to look at it. Okay. It's, it's the, it's, it, was, it is the sort of standard text on Hopkins. And if you're, if you're enjoying it that much, you might enjoy this too. Okay, so, thank you. Um, so, and I, don't, I mean, I don't know how much you're reading it, but take a look at it anyway. Okay, but thank you. Here, hold it up, your book. Mm -hmm. You want to say anything about it? Um, this book was written by uh, a lady named Margaret Ellsberg. I do not know her, but she was a very close friend of my younger sister who passed away three years ago. Wow. And she dedicated the book to my sister. Um, <laughs> and she, Margaret Ellsberg teaches at Bernard, 
and um, she's apparently done, she teaches English, and she's done a lot of studying about Gerard Manley Hopkins, and she wrote, uh, she wrote a prior book about him too, I think, but this one is brand new, it just came out in January maybe, and so I, I was told about it because of my sister, and I decided to order it from Amazon, and it's really interesting, and it has a chapter about the wreck of the Deutschland, which was helping me understand that a little bit better. Um, so it, it's it's a neat book. It's she kind of divides it into sections and talks about his life, a certain part of his life, and then the poems that he wrote during that part of his life, and then letters that he wrote to people during that part of his life, and then it goes on to another part of his life, and so it's very informative. Yeah. I think she's got, I can't, now I can't remember, but I think she may even have some of his sermons. In, I think she does, yeah. yeah. Spiritual writings, it says, poems, yeah. letters, journals, yeah. and spiritual writings. So. And just as a little um, bit of trivia, her last name is Ellsberg. She was married, she's now divorced, but she was married to the son of Daniel Ellsberg of the Pentagon Papers. If, if that means anything to anybody. <laughs> doesn't have anything to do with Hopkins, of course. <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna just read, I'm going to be as brief as I can with the Hopkins poem tonight and the overview because I want to get into the bear. And then next week I'm going to spend a little bit more time on Hopkins. So um, I'm going to read the, the first six stanzas of the second part of the poem. <laughs> um, looking back just very, very briefly, what Hopkins does in the opening is situate himself um, as a priest in his relationship with God, and he raises all sorts of questions about God's mastery in the world, his having created it, Christ coming into the world. Remember that uh, the use of that term stressed? In stress and inscape are two technical terms that he coined to explain what he was doing with his poetry. In stress is the, I don't know another word, the energy. Thomas would have called it the love that is from God holding all things in being, everything in being. It's in stress. You can feel the life of things. It's good for us to be perceptive of that lifeness in things. And inscape, which was the pattern of each thing, each thing had its, a pattern peculiar to itself, so we could know each thing, it had its own identity. And we, we were reminded of that last week, I hope, when, we, when I read The Wind Ever Again and Kingfisher's Catch Fire, I remember each thing has a self, it was really important in my mind because it gets to some of what I hope we're going to, some of what I hope we all are learning about poetry here and what it does. Um, so he situates himself there and then makes this comment that, that in our appeals to heaven, it's so easy for us to think about heaven in, in blissful terms. Heaven is where everything is good. But he talks about that moment when Christ came to Galilee and enters time with the t tomb, the grave, always hanging over him because he came to die. So he carried the end of his life, that grave, the crucifixion with him, you know, throughout everything he did, everything he did. So, however we look at heaven, it's almost 
I'd say it's impossible to look at it in completely blissful terms with Christ because Christ reminds us that if we're going to follow him, we go through a cross and a grave. So this whole notion of stress gets changed. It's, it's a part of our life with Christ. He situates himself there and puts himself, describes himself in terms of all these paradoxes, the severity of Christ, the mercy of Christ, or God, and repeatedly makes it clear that he believes that it's when, under those most pressing circumstances, that God most shows us his mercy, that he's trying to bring us to him by stripping us of all those things we used to hide from him, basically. So that's the setting. He's just, it's a, he, he's setting the context for himself. And then he begins the second part by turning to the, the ship itself and what happened. So I'm just going to read the first six stanzas, and I'm not going to comment on them tonight. And next week I'll, I'll take a few minutes to say something about them and then go on. Part the second. It opens describing death as if it hangs over everything and we're not to forget it. It's, it's, we hear this from the church in the phrase, memento mori, remember me, memento mori, remember death. We're supposed to always remember, not forget it. Part the second. Some find me a sword, some the flang and some the rail. Flame, fang, or flood goes death on drum and storms bugle his fame. But we dream we are rooted in earth, dust. Flesh falls within sight of us. We, though our flower the same, wave with the meadow, forget that there must the sour sight cringe and the blear share come. On Saturday sailed from Bremen, American outward bound, take settler and seamen, tall men with women, two hundred souls in the round. O oh, Father, not under thy features, nor ever is guessing. Feathers. Fe sorry? Not under oh, thy feathers. Not under thy feathers. Sorry. O oh, Father, not under thy feathers, nor even as guessing, the goal was a shoal of a fourth a doom to be drowned. Yet did the dark side of the bay of thy blessing not vault them, the millions of rounds of thy mercy not wreathe them, even them in, like ropes of mercy, with, with the ties that he has with everything in creation. Um, that is, remember, hanging over, I mean, remember, what's at the center of this is the paradox that God only allows suffering as a, as a way of expressing his mercy to us. And it's a serious question here, it's, and, and Hopkins has been raising it from the beginning, um, how God lets bad things happen, and more to particularly, how could he let something happen for his chosen? They were Catholics. They were persecuted. Um, their lands were taken away and they were forced to flee. Why wouldn't he take care of those people who most love him? You know, so, um, it did the dark side of the Bay of Thy Blessing not vault them, the millions of rounds of thy mercy not reeve even them in. Into the snow she sweeps, purling the haven behind. The Dutchland on Sunday, and so the sky keeps, for the infinite air is unkind, and the sea flint flake, black backed, in the regular blow, sitting east northeast, in cursed quarter, the wind. 
wiry and white fiery and whirlwinds swelled snow spins to the wind the widow making unchilding unfathering deeps unchilding unfathering she drove in the dark to leeward she struck not a reef or a rock but the combs of a smother of sand night drew her dead to the kentish knot and she beat the bank down with her bow the ride of her keel the breakers rolled on her beam with ruinous shock and canvas and compass the whorl and the wheel idled forever to waft her on or wind her with these she endured it's almost as the ship was the ship was toughing it out you know, trying to hold on hope had grown gray hairs hope had mourning on trenched with tears carved with cares hope was twelve hours gone and frightful a nightfall folded rueful a day no rescue <coughs> Only rocket and lightship shone, and lives at last were washing away. To the shrouds they took, they shook in the hurling and horrible airs. Over that long passage, we have this image of people hoping for to be rescued and not. So over time, more and more people were vanishing. So it had to add to the suffering, right? And the longer you're there, the more you hope and yet ultimately, it's like the Titanic. I mean, ultimately, it just it gets worse and worse and worse. When stirred from the rigging to save the wild womankind below, with the rope's end round the man, handy and brave, he was pitched to his death at a blow, for all his dreadnought breast and braids of thew, with a tough man, clearly. They could tell him for hours, dandled to the to and fro through the cobbled foam fleece. <laughs> it's like Hopkins to do that. Dandling is what a father does to a child. Yeah, you put a child on your knee and dandle it. He's describing this man who's, you can see him right from one of the spars. You know, he's, he wanted to get up to, to raise the women to try to give them time to save them. And he's dandling there. I mean, he's being jerked around and knocked by the violence of the sea. And look at the language. Through the cobbled foam fleece. There's this soft beauty of the ocean when it's the instrument of destruction. They could tell him for hours, dandled the to and fro through the cobbled foam fleece. What could he do with the burl of the fountains of air, buck and the flood of the wave? Let me stop there. So we're here at the beginning of the wreck when it's hit the bank, and all the time is passing and hope seems to be fading. Um, he will get to the five sisters pretty directly and describe what happens with them. Okay, let me, let's, let's do, let's do questions. Um, just a, a very, very quick review here. Last week, I read that passage from Matthew in which Christ says that um, God's love falls on the good and the bad, and that's a it's a passage taken from some of the Psalms from the Old Testament that, um, that God offers his love to everybody. Whether everybody receives it or wants it is another thing, but he offers it to everybody. And um, one of my reasons for doing that was um, to, to, to get to this question that I've been um, um, beginning our time with, and that is, can we find Christ in writing? When 
And good writers were invited to go inside the characters of these authors. Um, uh, Buck and Buddy, um, Luca, particularly Lucas and, and Pantaloons, and maybe more especially Ryder, and, I mean in uh, Fire and Heart. Um, Lucas and Fire and Heart, and then Ryder and Pantaloons. Because we get inside these characters, and who are in lots of ways not very likable characters, um, um, and you could see why people would not be well disposed towards Ryder. I mean, he pushes people out of the way after you know he buries his wife, and and um, he he's so overwhelmed with his despair, he, he can't talk with anybody. He, he doesn't have the conventions to fall back on that people do. This, this goes, by the way, this goes right to the heart of everything in The Bear because one of the issues in all of these stories is this difference between social conventions, the social conventions by which people leave, live, and what goes on inwardly inside that we can't get to unless we get past the social conventions. We saw that in Melville too. You know, all the people were living by social conventions, all of them, when we, before we set out to see. And there's something hypocritical about them. It's just not living <coughs> according to their beliefs. So one of the questions that I was raising is how do we get past this subject-object dichotomy? And I read that passage from Maritan, which I thought was wonderful, that in which he t says, if we're not known by God, we're not known by anybody, because God's the only one who knows us as subjects. Art habit is to use our minds to understand people and when we do that, we, we turn them into objects. It's an object known. Love is another thing. Love is unitive. It's, it's by means of love that we entered into. Christ's commandment, interesting. Christ's commandment was, I want you to know everybody. His commandment was, love everybody. The modern world has put a premium on knowledge because it's believed that with knowledge we can control things. So I, um, I've been pressing this thing because I think more than, more than in earlier writers, except maybe Shakespeare and Dante, but even in Dante there's a problem, but in, more, in modern writers, we are constantly taken inside the lives of characters. We know them from the inside. And I was suggesting that, um, that St. Thomas says that there, there are a number of different ways of knowing, different kinds of knowledge. Two that are a particular concern for us is mystical knowledge, because it's through mystical knowledge that we come into union with the thing known. That's what mystic knowledge is. And poetry. Thomas says there's a, a way of knowing by what he calls connaturality. Connaturality. We, we, we become one with another in nature. We share that. It's a knowledge by sympathy. Um, and I was suggesting that that's one of the things that poetry does, because by entering into another, um, we become one with them in the way that we feel about them. We can be disposed to them, so that even if we don't like Lucas, Father keeps saying this, by the way, in, in his homilies. I think he said it this morning. He said, um, we're called to love one another. We may not like each other, but we're called to love. <laughs> and I think it's important to hold on to that, that mm -hmm. we may not like each other, but we're still called to love one another. I'm, and you know that I'm, I'm presenting poetry as helping us with that because it's the one kind of knowledge that doesn't work with abstractions, ideas. It takes us into the concrete life of characters themselves. So, um, so we, I, 
I went over that briefly, and then we looked at pantaloons and black, pantaloon and black, and old people. And in both of them, um, we saw that um, Faulkner was helping us to see things that other people don't see. And he underlines that in both stories. At the end of um, Pantaloon, let me just quickly go back there for a second. Just to remember, we, we are taken into Ryder's life. We, we, we are up with him all night as he's drinking and vomiting and, and going to the mill the next morning and, and watching him as everybody else watches him lift that log and everybody wondering if he's going to make it or not, remember. Um, and then going to his aunts when she asks him to turn to God and he can't, and and then finally goes to the crap game at the end of the um, the story. I think I think knowing that he's going to die, he says, "I'm snake bit," and and he's not afraid of the poison. The poison won't get him. He's got nothing to live for anymore. Um, the snake bite won't hurt. There's nothing that will harm him anymore because he's lost everything that has meant anything to him. So. Um, let me just read a, a couple of passages um, to remind you of something. Um, remember when the deputy, this is on my page 152, when the deputy was describing the sheriff taking his men to Ryder's house to arrest him, and found Ryder asleep, and, and then as they took him away, the aunt came running up, do you remember? And the deputy says this, and may do trying to explain to her what would maybe happen to her too if them birdsong kin catches us before we can get him locked up. Only she's coming anyway, and like may do says, her being in the car too might be a good thing if the birdsongs did happen to run into us, because after all, interference with the law can't be condoned, even if the birdsong connection did carry that beat for may do last summer. I think that's the second explicit reference to how much the sheriff owes to the Birdsaw clan. And here, it, what, what's made clear to us is he seems to be upholding the law. You can't condone interference with the law. But what he really makes clear is he's glad that the ant is with them because since she's with them, they don't have to oppose the Birdsaw people if they happen to stop them. I hope that's clear. They're grateful she came along, because that means they wouldn't have to oppose the bird songs. So what we see is there's this subtle corruption in the police, that even though they seem to be upholding the law, they really aren't. They owe to the bird songs, they, and the coroner, remember, said by persons unknown, and everybody knows who you know, killed Ryder. So there are these little subtle things that Faulkner keeps showing us to make us aware that that people are not seeing from things. And, and he does this with the sheriff and the deputy at the end because the wife wants to get away to her movie. Um, he can't make any sense of what Ryder's doing. He has, can only see him as inhuman. So if we put the two things together, what we see is it's imp they just do not see him the way Faulkner has helped us to see him. So we become aware of ironies. We become better readers. We don't, have, we don't have to see, we, we see what happens when other people see that way, but they're really not reading well at all. I mean, there's a good example, Marcy, but, you know, they, they just do not see what's there. Um, 
And then he did it again in the old people, because remember, the, the story begins with Sam taking Ike to the deer after he's killed and said, don't walk up in front of him, get up behind him. And Ike goes up behind, takes his throat and cuts it, and then Sam puts his hand in the blood and baptizes him. And it's amazing to me, I mean, that's why I thought of Catholics, that um, th this would not be odd to a Catholic. It might be odd to the rest of the world, it shouldn't be to us. Sam smears the blood on him, and the words that he uses are he consecrated him. And later the word he uses when they go back to catch that buck at the end of the story was, he was ab absolved and consecrated of shame, and because he had learned to love the very thing whose life he took. He entered into a mystery of nature. Um, and then there's that wonderful passage at the, at the end, remember when when they, they're breaking camp and on their way out, when Boone spots <laughs> this deer with 14 points, and then they go after it and find out it's just this little stub buck. Um, but Walter Ewald, who never misses, kills it, and when Ike realizes he loses his chance, he's, he has that truculence of a boy who's you know, had the missed opportunity. And then, and then Sam says, wait. Um, and there's that, um, uh, my page 177, Sam says, wait, wait, the boy cried, and he would remember that. 174. Thanks. How he turned upon Sam and the truculence of a boy's grief over the missed opportunity, the missed luck. What for? Don't you hear that horn? <laughs> Um, and he would remember how Sam was standing. And then there's that beautiful description. Um, go down a little bit. Then the boy saw the buck. It was coming down the ridge as if it were walking out of the very sound of the horn. Here's what I'm asking everybody to do. And this, these are good examples. Is Christ, can we find Christ in language? I want to come back to this in a minute. Is Faulkner able to do something with words that another poet isn't? Here he's describing the, the spirit of the, this deer dying, coming out of the sound of the horn. I can't recall an image like that in all the literature that I've read. What does that do for our way of perceiving things? Then the boy saw the buck. It was coming down the ridge as if it were walking out of the very sound of the horn which related its death. It was not running. It was walking. Tremendous, unhurried, slanting and tilting. There's nothing he doesn't miss in this, his description. You know, the stateliness and the dignity of this deer who's just lost its life. It was walking tremendous, unhurried, slanting and tilting its head to pass the antlers through the undergrowth. And the boy standing with Sam beside him now instead of behind him, Sam always stood and the gun still partly aimed and one of the hammers still cocked. Now the deer sees it, um, but it's unafraid, just moving with that winged and effortless ease with which deer move passing within 20 feet of them, its head high, and the eye not proud and not haughty, but just full and wild and unafraid. And Sam standing beside the boy now, his right arm raised at full length, palm outwards, speaking in that tongue which the boy had learned from listening to him and Joe Baker in the blacksmith shop. While up the ridge, Walter Ewell's horn was still blowing them into a dead buck. Ole, chief. Sam said, grandfather. So Ham is, Sam is acknowledging in reverence the great spirit of the deer that they've just taken. So he's, he's teaching 
um, Ike not to take for granted the life around him, um, anything that he does. And then they come to um, Walter Ewell, who's standing over the deer, and, and who says, if there were any more tracks besides this ones he's laying, I would swear there was another buck that I never even saw. I mean, the irony is great once again. You know, it's like the end of the Pantaloon Black with the sheriff and his wife talking about Ryder. Walter Ewell and the hunter, other hunters do not see what Sam has just helped Ike to see. That's why I was thinking about this on the way home. I mean, I just, it seems to me Catholics ought to be at home here. I don't know if you, but we go through our lives saying that we see something that nobody else does and people can sort of laugh at us, but this is Faulkner. He's not a Catholic that I know, but he's helping us to see things in nature at a period of our history with almost nobody sees these things in nature because nature is now, with the sciences, inert, you know, abstract. Um, so um, those those were setting us up for the bear. Now I want to I want to try to put the bear in context here. So I want to take a second. Here are some of the major themes of the bear, um, and all of the stories have been preparing us in one sense for this story. That's how important it is. The land. We we know that in this story, Ike's going to receive his inheritance and he's going to relinquish it. And we also, we also know, I think, yeah, you guys will know, there's um, a prelude, a prefiguring of that moment when Ike is searching for the bear and he has to relinquish his rifle, his compass, and his watch. And by the way, compare that with Ahab. Remember, Ahab got rid of the compass, the, the, um, sex. The sextant. log and the line and the what? And the what? Sextant. Sextant. Yeah, but it was called. Wasn't yeah, but the compass and the, but the yeah, he got rid of those and artificially created his own, because he wanted he wanted to have absolute power over that ship. We saw that, yeah. Yes. Yes. Think yes. about think about the difference. Ike as a boy learning to hunt. Is, is learning that the only way he can go on as a hunter in the way that Ike has urged, Sam has helped to teach him, is by giving up everything. He's a hunter. What's the first thing he gives up? His gun. The next thing he gives up? All the technological means of making his way. That is, he's got to learn to stand in mystery. So his, his whole ground, I mean, Simon, think about this just for a second. We've talked about this. The wilderness belongs to God. The land is that which man owns because he, his approach to it is, it's mine. What is Ike doing right now? He's relinquishing all of that. He's standing in a completely different way. His object is not to kill the old Ben. And by the way, we'll see this in the beginning of the section two and repeatedly. And so he should have, and so he should have hated and feared Lion. Yeah, that's the way section two starts. So he should have hated and feared lion. That's repeated. Why should Ike have hated and feared lion? I don't know. It's lion, it's, lion's the dog, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why should he have hated and feared lion? Lion's a killer? Yeah. What did Sam say? We haven't got the dog yet. It's only when they get lion that, they, that old Ben's going to be brought down. In fact, it's going to bring this whole world to an end. This is, this is going towards a crushing... Do you think Moby Dick was dark? Um, 
This whole wilderness that Ike has grown up to is coming to an end. That's how dark this is getting. But here at this point, he's giving up everything. Forced to? No. He even says that. It was a matter of choice. I've set this against Ahab. This is, and these are Faulkner's words. Ike entered into his novitiate that he learned to hunt the, the woods the way an Indian did. Except he's going to do something the Indians didn't because even the Indians stole the land. Ike gives up everything. He relinquishes it. So the, the theme once again of the land, except now it's coming to a head. Everything that's been gathering is going to come to here because in sections four and five, Ike and Kaz are going to be debating about whether it was right to do that. The hunt is going to take on a different dimension because here, Ike is hunting old Ben, and it's really clear, I'm going to read it in a minute, it's really clear he doesn't want to kill him. And something happens to him because of what Sam has taught him. He's taught him to see things other people don't. Um, and the other thing is, I just want to expand this idea of a hunt. I've got Marcy on the line right now. Because we're pulling two ways of reading together. Remember, the hunt is an analogy. So it's, it's an actual hunt, but it also stands as a metaphor for defining relations between the sexes. We saw that in the first one when Savanza went after a buck. Two ways of reading it. <laughs> yes. Well, yes. By analogy, one way. Yes. By analogy. Um, it's got multiple levels, but to read it well, it means we have to see both ways. Um, where is it going? Sorry. Um, oh, yeah. The, Aristotle said the highest form of wisdom was shown in the way that people used analogies or metaphors to make comparisons between things. Um, when Ike and Kaz, this is looking forward a little bit, but, I, but I'm trying to set the stage here. When Ike and Kaz in the fourth section sit down and debate with each other, what's between them is a hunt. It's a dialectic. A dialectic is a tension struggling to get to something. I hope that's clear. So by analogy, it's like the hunt. They are after something and opposing each other. Because remember, the very nature of a hunt is a tension. You're, you're, in, you're in danger. You may lose something. You hope to find it or, or achieve it or attain it. So the hunt as a metaphor runs, it, it's a way of opening aspects of meaning on all, all sorts of things in the book. Um, and it's, it's of the nature of the dialectic between Ike and Kaz, okay? Because that's what we see. Stop for a second and just think about how important this is for our faith. All the heresies, if we go back to Moby Dick to that section where I stopped and went back to the heresies, people are either reading Christ as just human or divine, because they thought if he's if if he's if he's human, it would be um, tainting God. It would be degrading to him to say that God would do this. So the tendency on most readers so many readers in the early church was to see Christ as either one or the other, and not both. They weren't good readers. They weren't holding two things together. And over and over, the artist, Faulkner, is trying to get us to, to see terms like the hunt as bringing together different levels of reality. 
the, the, we can say that the dialect between the, the debate between Ike and Kaz is a hunt. They're disagreeing. They're going after something. Um, and, it, and, and, and in one case, Ike is trying to let go of it to give it up because he believes it's only by giving up that he will get to something that's important for humans to get to. And the only way of getting there is by giving it up. In that sense, it seems to me it's very Christ-like, mm -hmm. um, what he's doing. The city and the plantation, middle, middle of the um, bear, you know that in the third section, when they finally do bring down old Ben, Ike goes into the city with Boone, and when they go there, Hawk, Faulkner shows them this wasteland. It's a deadly place. Nothing happens there because nothing's going on. It's, it, they all feel, I mean, the way Faulkner describes it, is that they left the good things behind. And, and all the people in the city, what are they, and all the people in the train, what are they talking about? Everything that's going on with the hunt and the dogs and you know, all the stories they're hearing. The city is a place where people die. The, the sort of health-giving exchanges involving man with nature don't go on there. The city's covered it all up. It's taken it away. Um, the education. I want to go to this in a minute because it's so important. One of the greatest, most important themes of this whole book is Ike's education and the help that Sam gives him as a teacher. And I want to come to that and look at it closely because there's it goes right to the heart of what we're doing. If we're not taking this seriously, then I don't know why we're here together. It's, it's at the heart of what we're doing. Um, and part of Ike's education under Sam's tutelage is watching what Sam does with Lion and the way he educates Lion. And remember the aim here. The, the, because, and Kaz, even Kaz is confused about it when Ike has to, when he's sent home and he doesn't want to come home after they find Lion. Um, when Despain and the others, I'm going to read that passage because it's wonderful. When they see Lion for the first time, Despain says, shoot him. <laughs> we, could, we, should, we should capture old Ben and put old Ben on Lion because Lion is a much fiercer thing than they believe old Ben is. It's, it's a wonderful scene. Um, they're terrified of this dog. Sam does not want to do that. He says, we don't want him tame. Because to be tamed is to come back here, where everything's comfortable, everything's settled, everything's done, there's no risking, there's no danger, there's no hunt. It's settled, life is dead. Sam does not want that dog tamed. If they're gonna bring down old Ben, they need something along the lines of what only he and Ike know, and that the other hunters know. Um, so this, this theme of education is right at the heart of everything that goes on in this story. Language we've talked about, I'll come back to it again, but are we finding Christ in the way that Faulkner presents things? We just have to come back to it. And this theme of enchantment, I don't know what else to call it. When Ike is seven, this is the early part of the bear, we get these passages describing um, his dreams that old Ben looms larger than life in his dreams, and he looks forward to that day. All of us have had those experiences when we're young of falling in love with something, and it becomes, it can be our first rifle, or you know, I don't know what it is, but for all of us, but our first dreams are enchanting. We, we, we long for something that's larger than life, 
And um, one of the things that we've got to look at pretty seriously here, when Ike starts out, there's, there's no other word that I can find. He, old Ben looms in his dreams, and everything that Tam, Sam tells him, the stories about him, takes him back to the past. Everything about him is great. And then a, a time comes when he's killed. When we get to Delta Autumn, it's going to be a bitter, bitter story. Really bitter. What happens when old Ben dies is that the wild, it marks an end to the wilderness as we know it. We're going to see. The trains are coming, the townspeople are coming, they're flooding in to watch, they're flood, it's like Hollywood, they're flooding in to watch this entertainment. They want to see what's going on. They're not a part of it, they're removed. What happens when old Ben dies? And what happens to this boy's dreams? In fact, let me put it differently. Ishmael, the outcast one, the outcast. We saw what happened to the outcast. He, that's not who he is. He's, he has to assume the place of an outcast one because there's no place for him in that world. Ike is the child of promise. He grows up with these dreams, and there comes a moment when everything that he's lived for is going to be gone. What does he do? What does he do? That's a heavy note. <laughs> um, what is he going to do then? If this is the child of promise, how are we to understand Ike and this story, Go Down Moses? So we're moving towards um, the center of something really important here in this story. So a lot is going on here, okay? Let me stop there. Oh, here, one, one more thing before we turn to the... Just another way of putting this. You might, you might put this down because it might help you. If you look at the story as a whole, you know that it's framed, it's framed by a narrator. Remember, he stands outside of it, and then we get was, and we go into the stories. But he, he says, how did he... This is not something that, this was not something participated or even seen. We get this, I thought, Faulkner's own phrase, an anonymous communal, that this strange, stately, dignified kind of voice is setting the scene. And then we go into all these stories. Was takes place 1859, Kaz is nine years old, so it actually is, starts in 1850, so the story actually goes from roughly 1850. We know from things that we're told in these other stories that Ike dies when he's 80. So we know it goes to um, 1947. This is, and, and we also know, you guys I'm sure well know, is that we keep getting bounced back and forth in time dimensions because it's Faulkner's way of showing that time is not linear ever, that our memories it carried forward, and the past is very much... By the way, I thought about this. This was another way that struck me about our Catholic faith. And it goes to the point that I was just making, or the question that I was just asking about Ike. Um, Freud made this, a central part of his thinking. The past keeps interrupting because the past... He, he says it's repressed, that we certain things happen and we repress them. And go back even farther. If, if you're a Catholic, you believe that we're called to be good, we're asked to put our sins away, to repent, but we go through life, I think I'm speaking for all of us, I know I'm speaking for myself here, we go through life tripping over our sins all the time. So the fall, which is thousands of years ago, keeps interrupting, keeps coming into the present moment. So we know, we know deeply, integrally, you know, 
an immediate way that the that we always carry the past forward. It'll either it'll either sink us and take us back to the past, or we carry it forward and redeem it. And that's our life. I mean, that's our life in Christ. So it's amazing because the whole story is taking that form. I mean, we Ike is is going to relinquish his inheritance, and we're seeing a whole world come together defined around that action. Cass picks it up, he becomes the uh, um, the owner, the proprietor of the land. Ike gives it up. And, and I remember that, that the central question of the book is, should he have given it up? We can't answer that until the end, but... Um, but here's the story. So each one of the... We started here in 1859, Fire in the Hearth, starts in the present in 1941. But remember we go back to that time when um, when Lucas had to go for the doctor and, um, and um, Roth and Henry were born and, um, and in that period when um, Roth and Henry sleep together and grow up together and then Henry or Roth um, decides to sleep and there's that moment when he he sleeps separate, and, and the Fagner's description of it, it's like he got paralyzed in this rage that he, it's like the past descended on him. It just descended on him, and, and he fixed his face in iron and turned away from the boy. Um, had balloons is in 1941, old people. Ike is 12, so we're roughly back here. And then in Delta Autumn, Go Down Moses will come into the present. It's in the bear that we go back to um, to look at Ike's life as a whole to the time that he was seven, eight, nine, and finally ten, and joining the men and becoming a hunter and everything that happens here. So that's right now we're we're focused on what is the centerpiece of the, the whole novel, the bear, and why it's so important. Let me stop here just for a second because I want to start reading some passages. Any questions about anything that's said so far? We're putting different time dimensions together, and, and Faulkner's making it clear that we just can't ever look at reality as, as if it's a neat sequential thing, that it's layered and sometimes violent and disruptive and um, the past keeps intruding it, it won't be let alone um, it asks that we do something with it always no but it's so quiet good <laughs> I loves nature and respects it so much he is a hunter. Because you think hunting's against nature? Yeah. Killing. Yeah. Do you think God, I don't know if this is a fair question, or, do you think when God said, have dominion over the earth, and I mean, we're in a fall, because that was before the fall anyway, but where do you think God, I mean, do you think God objects to our killing animals? To, yeah. yeah. It just seems out of character for it. For God? No, not for God. For, for Ike. For Ike? Mm -hmm. yeah. He just, for the whole thing, he's just so devoted to everything around him. He's just 
cares about it, gave up his inheritance because of it. And yet, why, is, why are they yes, going? See, it's nothing wrong with killing. Maybe you have to look back to why they're killing, why they're going after all that. Well, it's killing, killing the killing. livestock. And yeah, and then maybe there's an element of protection of their livestock. I don't think so, not the deer. <laughs> Let me let me try. I don't know if this will. I, I don't know. I don't know if this will answer it. Um, we're in a fall. It's not a you know we're not we don't live in a pre-edenic or a pre-fallen world or an edenic world. We're in a fallen world. We have to survive. One of the beauties of me that allows me to hold on to the wonder for right that you feel, so that I think you and I share together. I'm speaking for myself now, is that Sam is teaching him to love the very thing that he, whose life he has to take. Um, to me, that in one sense, for me, I know it probably won't be the same for you, but in one sense, for me, that would be no different from learning to respect an apple when you plucked it off a tree. I know there's a big difference between taking and eating, but but life is there. Um, there's a difference between subhuman life, animals and plants, and the fact that we. We, as humans, we need them for our life. We can't, we can't survive without them. There's a difference. Don't tell a vegetarian that, though. There's a difference. There's a difference between what I, what Sam is teaching I, to do, to love, the very thing, whose life he's going to take. So there's a reference and a respect, and it's interesting, Richard, because. It, it seems to me, I would I would argue at least anyway. I don't want to even put it in the form of an argument, but I'd certainly take the line that way. That I could could not go on to do what he does if he didn't learn to take life and love it the way he does. Otherwise, he'd be like the other men. Because what Sam is teaching him to do is to love this. The other men are taking life trophies to, to show how good they are, how strong, how manly, you know, whatever. Um, there's something else going on in Ike, so that even though he's taking life from nature, I don't ever get the sense that he's ever done anything to show that he doesn't love it. Everything he does, the care that he takes, the reverence, the what not, he gets up every morning, hours before the other men. He reaches a point where he actually goes past Sam. He doesn't even wait on him. And and Faulkner's description of he went into land Sam didn't even know. You know, that he, and he knew more than all the, and all the hunters begin to acknowledge that. At the end, Compson says, let Ike ride Katie. And he says to Cass, he's, he's, he, he knows already more than you will ever know in your lifetime. So there's some way, I'm going to say, there's some way in which he cannot come to do what he does, to relinquish the land, if he doesn't learn to take the life from it. Because he'll never know the true value of it. Because, and I, and I, would, I would hold against that up, Say a pure, we're, we're not Puritans, Catholics are not Puritans. I'd hold against that a Puritan who would say, or, or um, a nihilist, a nihilist would say, take life, it doesn't matter anyway. Or a Puritan who would say, never take any. That, that one of the things that distinguishes Ike is that it's only because he's learned to take life that he, he doesn't take it for granted the way other people do. And I would, I would think, let me, and then I'll, sorry, I would think that would be true if, for anybody who's lost somebody, um, that most of us know that when you lose somebody, something, I, I'm guessing, 
I'm making an imaginative jump here. Maybe I should make. Do we actually learn to love them more dearly when they're lost? Because we don't. Ha we can't take them for granted anymore. Something of that happens when you're taught the right way. And I think Sam teaches Ike that. So he will never be able to love nature as he does until he learns to take the life from it. So he can never take it for granted. Something like that, I think, is what's going on. Because it's only in that way that he can, I mean, that you express the wonder, you, because he has that wonder that nobody else does. Because of that. Otherwise, how do you explain it? Um, I think of, well, I went to this play this weekend about um, uh, Kwana Parker, American Indian Comanche chief in, in Texas. He was the last Comanche chief in Texas. And then I was watching some things on Netflix about photographers and tribal people. And it kind of makes me think of that because the American Indians were very respectful of the land. And the tribal people are very respectful of the land. It's not that they go out and they shoot all the animals that they can just because. They shoot as they need. Right. But they don't disrupt the lifestyle or the lifespan, not the lifespan, or the way the animals live by chasing them and, and like little kids. Torturing them, torturing them, you know, lighting cats and doing stupid things like that. They're or, very or, or as trophies, yeah. you know, yes. you know yes. they, they, to show they, they did it out of necessity because they. So for sure, it's a completely different mentality mm -hmm. or heart, mm -hmm. both. Yeah. yeah. That's what. I, that's what I think of. I think that's that's good. And then you think of you know people that hunt. You go out to deer leases. Well, there are deer out there, so people can go shoot them. Yeah. You know? Right. Right, because what we've done here, here, here. I mean, I'm gonna, I want to put an end to this because we don't have much time. But because we've reached a point, and Faulkner's in some sense prophetic, where the wilderness is gone. So what, what's happened in modern is we create these artificial parks, Jurassic Park, or whatever it happens to be, where people can go out and hunt now. But one of the ongoing television shows right now is called Westworld where they've reconstructed a Western world where people buy into it the way they go to Disneyland. And they can go into the West and shoot and kill and... We, well, we do. We create these artificial... Jurassic Park, you know, what, three or four movies on that same thing? Because we live in a world in which we have a sense that we've lost contact with something in nature. That we, we, we've substituted for it a virtual reality. And something in us longs for it, to go back to that. Um, as if it's no more. Mm. Here, let's um, let's. <clears throat> I had this long list of passages that I took out that just to capture something of this sense of the oneness with nature, but. I don't want to do it now because there's not enough time. I may, I may just print it off and give it to you all, but, or I may just go over to next week, but I want to get to the book. Let's, let's turn. Uh, I, I really want um, you to hear Faulkner's voice, not my own. <clears throat> okay, very briefly. The bear is broken into five sections. I think you probably all know that. In the first section, um, Ike is 16, but he goes back to the time that he was actually 7, 8, 9, and 10, because at 10, he's eligible to be, to be one of the hunters, and he joins the men and goes out to hunt. 
And it's in the, that opening section that we see this spirit of enchantment, that there's something about the woods that captivates this boy, partly because it's not his. He longs for it. It's something still yet to come. And um, all that Sam does to help prepare him for it. Um, and he will come to that moment. We'll see where he relinquishes his, his gun and then his watch and compass. In part two, Sam has made it clear that they don't have the, the dog yet that can bay him, that can corner old Ben. And they, they, Ike brings this feist, this little squeaky, barky dog, who is fearless but stupid. And, 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 <laughs> and lacking the power. And Sam knows it's got to be something stronger because we know from all the descriptions that if old Ben found himself in the presence of a dog like that, he'd swat it, and the dog would end up 40 feet away yelping like the other dogs when they come back into camp. Um, and then they, they actually find um, Lion. I'll come to that in a minute. Um, and um, in one section, after they find him and, and Sam finishes his education, the dogs actually bay him. Lion finds him, and they corner him, and Boone has a shot at him. And you know that Boone shoots at him five times and does it. <laughs> and then that night, he sulks. And he, um, I think it's Despain who asks him where he is, and he says he's with Sam, and, and Despain says, why? And he says, um, because I can't sleep with him no more. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to sleep with him anymore. So he won't sleep with Lion after that time. In part three, um, we're back to Ike at 16, um, and several years have passed now, and they've returned and been unsuccessful in bringing old Ben down. They, the, the, the hunting period actually ends, but they wait a couple of days. This is interesting. They wait a couple of days for the weather to clear to give one last um, chase, and they actually do, this time, corner. And I don't want to say anything because it's, it's too extraordinary. So I don't want to come back and read it. Um, and then act, or part four will take up the... The, the debate between Ike and Kaz, and I, I want to, I want to, we'll pick that up next week. That's where we'll start next week, and then finish with part five. But today, I'd like to try to, to see if we can't get through one through three, and and I'd like to let Faulkner do as much of the talking. So let's let's turn to the beginning of the beer. I, my, my opening page is 183. What's your first page? 189. One, so you're page, two pages behind roughly, okay? Um, there was an old man and a dog too, this time. Two beasts counting old Ben, the bear, and two men counting Boone Hagenbeck. In whom some of the same blood ran which ran in Sam Fathers, even though Boone's was a plebeian strain of it. And only Sam and old Ben and the mongrel lion were taintless and incorruptible. I think he's what he's saying is they haven't given themselves over to the land. By the way, just to go back to this for a second, you know, this his words taintless and incorruptible, and Sam saying he doesn't want to tame lion. Freud's theory takes this form in the, in, it, in the later stages of its development. You've got the ego, which is our self-centered part of each of us, and an id, which is all the um, lawless instincts that are at the root of 
according to Freud, all of us, these perverse sexual instincts that all of us have. And what he called the superego, which is basically a system based on the mores of civilization. There, it's, it's those things that press themselves on us that make us aware of our guilt or that the strong influence. And the struggle that the ego has is to bring those two things together. Stop and think about this because um, this isn't Freudian, but, it, but I'm saying this because it's close to it. Um, Fogner is really clear that Sam and Ike face two dangers. Either just killing violently, they're not going to do, Sam's not going to do that, or becoming tame, which was one of the fears that Freud had with um, the superego, that man would just conform to the general, the system of mores operated at that time in his life. Um, the danger here, clearly, as Faulkner sees it for the boy and Sam, is conforming to that system by which everybody else operates. Because all the other men are the hunters, they're the standard, they're the ones against which everybody measures themselves. Sam is trying to do everything he can to help that boy see something different. And here he's saying, even though Boone's was a plebeian strain of it, only Sam and Old Ben and the mongrel lion were taintless and corruptible. Their blood goes back untainted. They belong to an Indian race, a primitive race. They haven't been tamed, they haven't been corrupted. Um, going over a couple, a couple of pages. Um, I, let's see, probably around 183 somewhere. It's that paragraph that begins, he realized later. In the middle of that paragraph, um, the long legend of corn cribs broken down and rifled of shoats and grown pigs and even calves carried bodily into the woods and devoured and traps and dreadfalls overthrown and dogs mangled and slain and shotgun and even rifle shots delivered at point-blank range yet with no more effect and so many peas blown through a tube by a child a corridor of wreckage and destruction beginning back before the boy was born through which sped not fast but rather with a ruthless and irresistible deliberation of a locomotive a shaggy tremendous shape it ran in his knowledge before he ever saw it. It loomed and towered in his dreams before he even saw the unaxed woods where it left its crooked print, shaggy, tremendous, red-eyed, not malevolent, but just big, too big for the dogs which tried to bear. It goes on. That's his description. He, down below he says, um, which ran not even a moral beast, but an anachronism, indomitable and invincible out of an old dead time. So, <laughs> I mean, if you look at the way most people look at bears, nobody's ever come close to looking at a bear this way. But that's the image that Faulkner's giving us, because what he's showing us is that there is in this bear something that is primeval, like an avatar. It's, um, it's larger than life. It stands for the wilderness, something indomitable. It's, remember, if, if we go back to Dante, if God made nature, then there's something in nature that is indomitable, invincible, uncontrollable. Um, to, to presume to try to bring that down has consequences. Um, going over 185, in the middle of the, uh, the paragraph, his day came at last, in the middle of that, 
He entered it. Sam was waiting, wrapped in a wrapped in a quilt on the wagon seat behind the patient and steaming mules. He entered his novitiate to the true wilderness with Sam beside him. Remember, he enters it, and then the description is it closes behind him. So he gives us a sense that in going to the wilderness, he enters something like a sacred space. That something different is going to go on here. Um, let's see, one. Um, when all the. When they begin to track old Ben, there's that period when all the dogs come back, remember, and they're trembling with excitement. They can't get a hold of them. Um, Faulkner describes this effluvium, that there's this color and scent and smell because they're so worked up. Um, because in, in meeting old Ben, they're meeting something that they're not used to meeting. Um, so more and more, Ike is getting a sense of how tremendous this thing is. On page 189, um, let's see, where do I do this? They've been hunting old Ben, they haven't found him. At the bottom of 190, Sam says, it will be tomorrow. You mean we will try tomorrow, Sam said. We ain't got the dog yet. We've got 11, he said. They ran him in Monday, and you heard him, Sam said. We saw them too. We ain't got the dog yet. It won't take but one, but he ain't there. Maybe he ain't nowhere. The only other way would be for him to run by accident over somebody that had a gun and knowed how to shoot it. That wouldn't be me, the boy said. It would be Walter or Major. It might, Sam said. You watch close tomorrow because he's smart. That's how come he's lived this long. If he gets hemmed up and has got to pick out somebody to run over, he will pick you out. How, he said. You mean he already knows me? And then he begins to wonder, because for the first time, Sam's remarks is, is causing him to raise questions about that the bear might know him, that he's already beginning to see him. Out. Um, this so reminds me of Socrates. I mean, Sam is doing all he can to, to make this kid begin to wonder, to question about what's going on. You watch tomorrow, Sam said. I reckon we better get back. It'll be long after dark. Um, now, what happens the next day, you remember, they come to this, this. what do you call those places where you stand, the trap places, the, Stand the stands, yeah. Um, and there's this noise, and, and Sam and I suddenly quiet themselves. And they don't hear anything, and then everything is gone, and it's quiet. And um, it, it leads to, um, the two of them to say, this is about 193 or so, the end of the paragraph. She came and, um, and crouched against his leg, trembling, this dog. I didn't see him, he said. I didn't, Sam. I know it, Sam said. He done the looking. You didn't hear him neither, did you? No, the boy said. I. He's smart, Sam said. Too smart. Go down. Too big. We ain't got the dog yet, but maybe someday. Because there would be a next time after and after he was only ten. It seemed to him that he could see them, the two of them shadowy in the limb from which time emerged and became time. Um, it goes on. Um, hold on. I want to jump forward. Ike brings the feist in. Um, and Sam knows for sure that that's not the dog. Um, 
going over to 196 or so. Ike is 11 now. Um, um, they co he comes back from having looked again. Sam says in the middle of 195, you ain't looked right yet, Sam said. He stopped. For a moment he didn't answer. Then he said peacefully in a peaceful rushing burst, as when a boy's miniature dam in a little brook gives way. All right, yes, but how? I went to the bayou. I haven't found that log again. This is really interesting. Good. Um, you're talking about curiosity in the morning and one of the sisters saying, and, and the reason you need to know, <laughs> talking about a sister quieting up one of the sisters because she always she had this curiosity and always had to find reasons. And we heard the sister say to her repeatedly, and your reason for knowing, <laughs> which was another way of saying politely, shut up. Um, if you notice how often Sam keeps interrupting Ike when he's got all these questions, and we know from what Faulkner said is Ike or Sam doesn't respond to questions much. Um, he, he wants Ike to know that there's something in standing in wonder and not always having to get control of something with answers. You ain't looked right yet. Yes, but how? I went to the bayou. I haven't found that log yet. Again. I reckon that was all right. Likely he's been watching you. You never saw his foot, I, the boy said. I didn't, I never thought. It's the gun, Sam said. Um, so the next day, this is about 197 or so. He left the next morning before light. Do you have that page? Bottom of 195. 195. Down a few lines. Um, he, he goes before light on his own. He went fast yet still quietly becoming steadily better and better a woodsman without yet having time to realize it. He jumped a doe and a fawn, walked them out of the bed close enough to see them. Go down. He was hunting right upwind as Sam had taught him. But that didn't matter now. He had left the gun. By his own will and relinquishment he had accepted not a gambit, not a gambit, but a choice. Not a choice but a condition in which not only the bear's heretofore inviolable anonymity, but all the ancient rules and balances of hunter and hunted had been abrogated. He stepped outside of that hunter world. Um, I want to come back, just hold on to that. He would not even be afraid, not even if in the moment when the fear would take him completely. Blood, skin, bowels, bones, memory, from the long time before it even became his memory. And he recalls what Sam said, be scared, you can't help that, but don't be afraid. Ain't nothing in the woods going to hurt you if you don't corner it or it don't smell that you're afraid. A bear or a deer has got to be scared of a coward, the same as a brave man has got to be. That is so true. I'm sure most of us know that. God. Um, he'd left the camp nine hours ago um, he stopped for the first time since he'd risen from the log when he could see the compass face at last. Down, he stood for a moment, a child alien and lost in the green and soaring gloom of the marvelous <coughs> wilderness. Then he relinquished completely to it. It was the watch in the compass. God, this is such an amazing moment. I'm going to get personal. I'm how easy it for, is it for any of us, at any of our most, to let completely go of everything? Just to surrender to the moment. And I hope everybody, I mean, this is that moment for Ike. He's a boy, but that's what he's doing right here. He's giving up 
any sense of control or having to know. He gave up his gun power. He gave up his watches how to know things, how to orient. Right now he has stepped into something none of the other men know. <coughs> he stood for a moment a child alien and lost in the green and soaring gloom of the markless, markless wilderness. There are no marks, orientations. He's, he's got to learn to move there. Then he relinquished completely to it. It was the watch and the compass. He was still tainted. He removed the link chain of the one and the loop throng with the other from his overalls and hung them on a bush and leaned the stick beside them and entered it. I think sometimes of a priest or marriage when we enter in whatever way we think we've got the answers to things at that moment, I, I think most of us know, we realize well into it that um, it wasn't like that at all. Um, go down. And he did what sin. Now he's got nothing to orient himself. He's, he's got to learn to move against himself and by himself, oriented to himself, whatever he does, with what's around him. He did what Sam had coached and drilled him as the next and the last, seen as he sat down the log, the crooked print, the warped indentation in the wet ground, which while he looked at it, continued to fill with water until it was level full and the water began to overflow and the sides of the print began to dissolve away. He's that close. You can all pitch that, right? You've seen a print with water beginning to fill into it. And it, he's, he's close enough in time that it's beginning to fill up. So he knows he's close. And moving, the one beyond it, moving, not hurrying, running, but merely keeping pace with him as they appeared before him, as though they were being shaped out of thin air, just one constant pace short of where he would lose them forever and be lost forever himself, tireless, eager, without doubt or dread, panting a little above the strong, rapid little hammer of his heart, emerging suddenly into a little glade, and the wilderness coalesced. It rushed soundless and solidified the tree, the bush, the compass, and the watch glinting where a ray of sunlight touched them. Then he saw the bear. It did not emerge, appear. It was just there, immobile, fixed in the green and windless noon's hot dappling. God, not as big as he dreamed it, but as big as he had expected, bigger, dimensionless against the dappled obscurity, looking at him, then it moved, it crossed the glade without haste, walking for an instant into the sun's full glare and out of it, and stopped again and looked back at him across one shoulder, then it was gone. Aided sank back into the wilderness. Let me stop for a second. What's happening? What's happened right now? How do we explain this moment? I think this is one of the most extraordinary moments in literature that I've ever read, quite honestly. What's, what's happened here? It's come of age with me. Bear actually respected him. Yeah. To me, to me, this is an indentic. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limit. This is an indentic moment. Beholding. There's no, yeah. They're, my word. Thanks, Doc. They're beholding each other. There's no predator or prey. There's no hunter and hunted. They're gone. I mean, clearly, there's some vestige of that there. Mm -hmm. But it, it, in a fallen world, it seems to me it's as close to Eden as we'll ever get. They, they're beholding. I mean, it's like there's a respect. A respect. I'd say even more. If, if Sam is right that the bear's been watching him and learning, I mean, Sam's got this sense that there's something in nature, you know, 
There's something, I've been saying this, there's something in nature, the lotus, there's everything in nature. This bear's been through everything. He's, he's killed, he's ravaged, he eats, he has to eat. He's been hunted, he's been shot, he knows men. Um, I tracked him, and he went by himself and without the means that all hunters use. All of this puts him on a different relationship with this bear at this moment. He, he has changed the ground of it completely. And the bear took him back to the same glade yeah. where he hung his compass, compass and his watch. So I think what Fogger, you know, we, in all of the epics, and, and we'll see it here, and we'll see it in the debate between Kaz and uh, Ike, they'll go back to Eden. Remember at the beginning of Moby Dick where he talked about the two orchard thieves and the, that thump that Melville went back to the fall and it's that sense of the epic time that that Faulkner's doing something like that here, that this moment is, is like an Edenic moment. The, the fall, the effects of the fall are suspended. There's this wonder in beholding. The bear's not running because Ike's not after him, and Ike's not after him. He wants to... So they've stepped outside that honor code, the code of the hunter, and found a new ground. Um, it's, I think it's part of what Ike has, um, what Sam has been teaching him, and to, even to love when he kills, that, that he, he holds inside of him something the other men don't have, and that they don't see. They don't. None of the men have had an experience like this that we know of. Um, let me just quickly, I want to, I want to just tell you that um, the, the, um, lion story, you know what happens, they, they come across, or they're missing the little fold, the, the little colt. And Major de Spain is, here's the reading, Major de Spain assumes that it's old Ben. And, and this is one of the most important learning periods for Ike. Um, de Spain says he abrogated the rules, he broke the rules, old Ben did, I mean he's angry, he, he feels like he's been violated, that old Ben dishonored the men because he Came into camp and took a, you know. And during this whole time, Sam is quiet and Ike is observing him. And then they find the, um, the little sheep or the, uh, the deer and another one. And they're, they're, they're convinced it was either old Ben or even a wolf or a panther or something. But none of them have any sense that it, it is what it is, except Sam. And during this whole time, um, they, they, they finally come across the, 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 the colt and they see the tracks and they don't even read the tracks well. Now, I want to stop for a minute because this, is, this goes to this whole thing of reading. Think about what's going on right now. All of the men are jump, they're making conclusions based on tracks. So here in front of them are signs, the prints, the evidence of things. And more importantly, there is for Ike Sam's face. I mean, yeah, Sam's face. He's watching all the other men, and when Faulkner describes it, but there was neither first nor the last time he had, he had seen men rationalize from even act upon their misconception. This is page 206. It's that, it's that paragraph that begins, they returned to camp and had breakfast and came back. What, page 1, I, 206, so 204, 205. 
They returned to camp and had breakfast and came back with guns in the hands. Two or three. Afterwards, the boy here. Afterwards, the boy realized that they they also should have known then. They should have the boy. This is a boy. The the boy should have he knows they should have known then that what killed the colt as well as Sam fathers did. But that was neither the first nor the last time he had seen men rationalize from and even act upon their misconceptions. They totally misread. So, I mean, stop and think about this. We deal with signs all the time, right? Particularly in our faith. Sam has taught him to hunt tracks. He's taught him to look at trees, to recognize um, the hiding places of the animals. He even comes to a point where he's there in the nest when the animal comes back and kills them. He has learned to read everything in nature. And here are these men now um, realizing that they've lost a colt. They assume that it was old Ben. They're outraged at it. They jump to conclusions. When they find the colt, they see the tracks, and immediately they assume it's a panther or a wolf. Ike is watching all of this, and he's watching Sam, and he knows that Sam knows it's not what the other men think. And then finally, it's on page 207, so it's, what, 2045? The paragraph, but they did not. They took the hounds with them on the next day, though when they had reached the place where they hoped to find a fresh trail, the carcass of the colt was gone. Then on the third morning, Sam was waiting again, this time until they had finished breakfast. They even finally find the colt, and they've always got these tracks. So here, just stop for a second. Tracks, signs, prints orientations. They're, they're all things that you have to read to get where you're going. Right? None of them can read these as well as Sam. And I, who's been tutored by him, is aware of Sam. And he knows by his face that Sam knows what the answer is when the men don't. And he's describing, I mean, that word. But that was neither the first nor the last time he'd seen men rationalize from from and even act upon their misconceptions. The way men use reason to come to conclusions that aren't well grounded, because they're not reading well. Now we know what happens. Sam takes him to the cottage and <laughs> there, trapped behind this trap door, this fall door, is this beast on page 208, or 263, I guess. What in the hell's name is it, Major Spain said. It's a dog, Sam said. His nostrils arching and collapsing faintly and steadily in that faint, fierce milkiness in his eyes again is on that first morning when the hounds had struck the old bear. It's the dog. The dog? It's going to hold old Ben. Dog the devil, Major Spain said. I'd rather have old Ben himself in my pack than that brute. Shoot him. <laughs> no, Sam. You'll never tame him. How do you ever expect it? What's Despain's first response? Tame him. I mean, think about the two world views that are coming into conflict right here. You'll never tame him. How do you expect to make an animal like that afraid of you? I don't want him tame. Here's the land. We've got this tension here between the wilderness and the land and something in between where Ike and Sam are. I don't want him tame, Sam said. Again, the boy watched his nostrils and the fierce milky light in his eyes, but I almost rather he be tamed than scared of me or any man or anything, but he won't be neither. Think about a parent. You don't want a child to completely conform. 
You don't want a child to be terrified. You want a child to have the courage to sort of navigate his way in the world, I mean, how's to put it. Um, so they chase him continuously and are unsuccessful. And then there's that day when Boone actually, um, and, and Lion actually catch him. Before we get there too, <laughs> one night after they're hunting and they've been unsuccessful, Despain wants to know where Boone is, you know, and, and Sam lets on that he's with Lion. Lion is sleeping with him. This is on 212, 211. Spain comes into Boone's room and finds Boone fast asleep with Lion next to him. <laughs> and um, says this, damn it Boone, or this is Kaz, McCasm said, get that dog out of here, he's got to run old Ben tomorrow morning. How in the hell do you expect him to smell anything fainter than a skunk after breathing you all night? <laughs> Despain hears that and wants him out of there, and then we learn from Despain that he knows that Boone's not going to obey him, that because as soon as all the men go away, Boone sneaks back into his bed and has to lie with him. I, I don't want to go through that passage, but remember this passage when, when, when they come back to the camp after they've left, and um, Boone sees Lion next to Sam, and he bends down and says, can I touch him? And Fogner describes him as if he's, as if, he says, it was as if he was touching a woman, and then he reverses and says, no, it was as if that were a man and Boone were the woman, that there's almost something sexual. And I want you to hold on to this, because remember, this hunt engages all realities, um, sexual too. Um, um, on page 216, Boone shoots at him and embarrasses himself because he misses him. And he says, um, where's Lion Boone? I left him at Sam's, Boone said. He was already turning away. I ain't feet to sleep with him. Um, and then we get that refrain. So he should have hated and feared Lion. Um, and now we come to the, to the crisis of the, it seems to me, in some ways, the whole book. Um, the, the, the dogs come on, old Boone. Oh, oh, the other thing, I, forgot, I knew there was, you can all actually help me out here, because I forget, the other thing, I got so good that he could distinguish the voices of the dogs, mm -hmm. and, he, and he could distinguish Lion's absence, because he knows that Lion would never bark. It wouldn't be till Lion had his prey by the throat that he would growl. So he's gotten fine enough that he can identify, he can hear silences, what they mean, and you can distinguish the different dogs by name. So he is, a, he is a good reader. Sam has helped this boy to read well. In humility, in courage. Um, so the dogs um, corner him on page 230, my page. Um, I, 229, I guess. Now the woods ahead of them, the rainy heavy wear, were one uproar. And you know that Boone is on the mule and racing because he wants to keep up with Lion. Lion has got the scent, and Lion takes after old Ben. He got his leg over the mule as it came up out of the water. Boone didn't try to mount again. He grasped one stirrup as they went up the bank and crashed through the undergrowth, which fringed the bluff, and saw the bear on its hind feet, its back against a tree while the bellowing hounds swirled around it, and once more Lion dove in, leaping clear of the ground. Got that so vivid. This time the bear didn't strike him down. It caught the dog in both arms, almost lover-like, and they, went, they both went down. He was off the mule now. <laughs> this is so amazing. 
It was the sight of Lion being in danger that made Boone take his knife and jump into the fray. And you, you know what happens. Um, um, at the next page, it fell just once. For an instance, they almost resembled a piece of statuary. The clinging dog, the bear, the man stride its back, working and probing the buried blade. And they went down, pulled over backwards by Boone's weight, Boone underneath. It was the bear's back which reappeared first, but at once Boone was astride it again. He had never released the knife, and again the boy saw the almost infinitesimal movement of his arm and shoulder as he probed and sought. Then the bear surged, erect, raising with it the man and the dog too, and turned and still carrying the man and the dog. It took two or three steps towards the woods on its hind feet. Oh, God. So he wants to get back to its habitat. As a man would have walked and crawled down, it didn't collapse, crumple. It fell all of a piece as a tree falls, so that all three of them, man, dog, and bear, seemed to bounce once. Um, you know what happens. I, I want to get to a passage here because to me it's so touching. They immediately go in to help with Boone and Lion because time, Lion's guts, you know, are ripped out. Um, Boone's had part of his ear um, eaten. And immediately Boone wants to, he gets up from that pile and is asked where he's going. He says he's going into town to get a doctor. He's, I think he's thinking more about Lion than, um, than himself. Um, and it's at that point that they realize that Sam's down. And they turn around and nobody understands what happened except we learned from Mike that, um, that it was like exhaustion. That he, when, when the bear went down, Sam went down. Because there's that connaturality, that, that relationship of sympathy. Did the bear fall on him too? Mm -hmm. well, Sam's back, I think, watching. Um, the doctor comes back on page 235, um, the, and it begins in spirit. The sawmill doctor from Hope was already there. Boone would not let the doctor touch him until he had seen the lion. He wouldn't risk giving lion chloroform. He put the entrails back and sewed him up without, with, without it while Major Despain held his head and Boone his feet. Then he never tried to move. He lay there, the yellow eyes open upon nothing while the quiet men and the new hunting clothes and then the old ones crowded into the little airless room, rank with the smell of Boone's body and garments, and watched. Then the doctor cleaned and disinfected Boone's face and arm and leg and bandaged in them. It goes on. So there's this tender description of it. It's, it's so realized, so completely. The doctor takes care of Lion and then attends to Boone. They talk about Sam. The doctor's explanation is he just gave up. He's exhausted. Um, and then um, the men prepare to leave. And you know what happens. There's that wonderful passage where Kaz says, not in your life, because remember Kaz is the one who looks after the boy on page 239, I guess, for you guys, 240. Um, Ike says over and over again, he wants to stay. He does not want to go home. And, and for Kaz to insist that he not miss school, shows how much he doesn't understand what's just gone on. I've got to stay, he said, I've got to. All right, General Compson said, you can stay. If missing an extra day, extra week of school is going to throw you so far behind, you'll have to sweat to find out what some hired pedagogue put between the covers of a book. You better quit altogether. And you shut up, Kaz, he said. The McCaslin has not spoken. You got one foot, here it is. 
You got one foot straddled into a farm and the other foot straddled into a bank. You ain't even got a good hand hold where this boy was already an old man long before you damn Sartoruses and Edmondsons invented farms and banks to keep yourselves from having to find out what this boy was born knowing and fearing too, maybe, but without being afraid, that could go ten miles on a compass because he wanted to look at a bear and none of us had ever got near enough to put a bullet in, and looked at the bear and came the ten miles back on the compass in the dark. Maybe by God that's why, maybe by God that's the why and the wherefore of farms and banks. I reckon you still ain't going to tell what it is, but still he could not. I got to stay. Constance says, finally, you stay. You know what happens. They, they leave. Oh, the other man, Boone and Ike stay. On Thursday, on the next page, um, Tenny's Jim, Kaz, and Despain return, and they go directly to the gravesite, and when Kaz sees Boone at the gravesite, he jumps off the horse and goes at him fiercely. Um, um, and he's, he's not intimidated by Boone, even though Boone is much larger. On 242, um, turn loose, Boone, Kazan said. You damn little spindling, Boone said. Don't you know I can take it away from you? Don't you know I can tie it around your neck like a damn cravat? Yes, McCasin, turn it loose, Boone. This is the way he wanted it, he told us. He told us exactly how to do it, and by God, you ain't going to move him. So he did it like he said, and I've been sitting here ever since to keep the damn wildcats and varmints away from him, and by God, and McCaslin empties the gun in the chambers. Did you kill him, Boone? He said. Then Boone moved. He turned. He moved like he was still drunk, and then for a moment, blind too. Go down, fell forward, flinging up both hands and catching himself against the tree and turning until his back was against it. Backing with the tree's trunk, his wild, spent, scoriated face and the tremendous heave and collapse of his chest. How often men in this story can't breathe, writer. Ike goes through periods where he can't breathe. Boone, now, that they are so overwhelmed with meaning at what's taking place that, that there's almost no way humanly to deal with it. We all have those moments. Collapse of his chest, McCaslin following, facing him again, never once having moved his eyes from Boone's eyes. Did you kill him, Boone? No, Boone said, no. Tell the truth, McCaslin said. I would have done it if he'd asked me to. Then the boy moved. He was between them facing McCaslin. The water felt as if it had burst and sprung, not from his eyes alone, but from his whole face like sweat. Leave him alone, he cried. God damn it, leave him alone. Um, this will take us to the... Let me stop here. So, what to say about this? Wow. I hate to give this away. In some ways, this is going to mark the end of the wilderness. The bear's gone. Sam is dead. Ike's tutor is gone. The enchantment, the promise, all that he'd hoped for is being taken away. The special relationship with nature that he had through Sam is now at some kind of a pass. You know, we have to see what's going to happen. But anyway, you catch all of this, right? The, 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 the bear. In the bear, which is, it seems to be principally about education, about learning the ways of nature, and in a way that separates Ike from all other boys, and it brings him to such a point that he's able to relinquish his um, his um, claim on the land. He doesn't want it. He gives it up, 
and CAS will take it. So right now, in some sense, we've reached this. We won't because the real center is going to come in Section 4 when CAS and I debate, and then we're going to discover things that, if, if, you, if you haven't read it, I'm not going to tell you, but if you have, you know it's coming. At it's the dark center of the word. We're going to discover horrible, horrible things. Um, and the reason for like Ike's relinquishing is hope that by relinquishing that he could put an end to this curse that's been you know, carried on since Eden in the fall in, in the plantation. But here in the center is this wonderful story about this boy learning the ways of the word and, and then finally bringing it down with him. So, any, any questions before we break? I wanted to have a time, Bob, I was, but we don't. And I, next week, if could we don't, we've got to get out of here. I'm talking about signs and learning to read prints and signs and um, what was the, oh, voices and faces, remember, that Ike was learning. I remember a story that Bob told us um, about being called in on some ocean project and being asked to read the waves and all these men. Can, next week, can we begin with that? Would you mind? You were doing this on the wave movements and something, and people were saying that something couldn't be done. And think about it. Next week, I'd like to start with that. I have to call you. Make it up. I've had six really interesting bear stories. <laughs> One of which I'm embarrassed because I, I was invited to a bear hunt out in Pennsylvania. And the way they get them is they go out with, with trash can lids. So everybody beats, beats them and they drive them up the hill. And I had a post on top of the mountain and the guy says, stay here with the gun. And then when they, the, you'll hear them coming, coming up, go to shoot them. Well, the noise, the racket, and then of course these bears that were running through the woods, they were just crashing through this thing. The noise was was really, you know, I, I was a young guy. I mean, I wasn't a, I, I mean, I've already been out of, I had just moved there and was going to teach at uh, at Johnstown, University of Pittsburgh uh, Johnstown. And <laughs> I'm sitting there in this mountain, and I hear this damn bear, and they, go, they say, coming your way, Bob. <laughs> well, he broke, I was up in this clearing, and he broke through the woods. And man, he saw me, and, and he's he looked like he's coming right at me, and there was no way in hell I was gonna pick up this gun. <laughs> I was off. Ducktail and run. That lines up with my. I told you the story about my experience in Yosemite when I, the bear, the, our friend started throwing pebbles at me to wake me up. Yeah. And I, and I had all these images of being really brave if I happened to see a bear. Did I, right. Didn't I tell you the story? And I, anyway, the, the guy was throwing pebbles at me and woke me up, and then he started pointing over, and I looked over, and here was this bear 15 feet away eating off our the table. What was my response? This, this, that I had imagined this heroic thing. I, I pulled the sleeping bag over my head. Duck and come I might as well have gotten over there and let him eat me.